again and turn to the Gospel of Luke, if you would. 877 in the Pew Bible, if you're using it. Luke 18, verse 18. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, or rabbi, they're, in exchange, they're exchangeable. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In other words, be my disciple. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Literally in the text, he had a lot of property. Seeing Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, Sorry, let me say it again. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes. In other words, we have left all too and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. You can see in the text that it opens and ends with that phrase. Again, it's a framework. It talks about the question is, how shall I inherit eternal life? And he says at the end, and the age to come eternal life. And in between... He's going to answer like he did this morning that question, how does one have eternal life? I've titled these two messages today, Gospel Change. The reality is that everyone has a gospel. Everyone in this room has a gospel. And everyone in this world has a gospel. The question is, is your gospel the same as it is Jesus's? Um, When you think of the gospel in the framework of eternal life, Um, We often think of eternal life only in the aspect of duration. Um, Eternal, meaning lasting forever, life. Um, The Bible is very clear about, it's not only about duration, it's about transformation. It's about eternal life. It's not just that it lasts forever, but it's not just quantitative life. It's qualitative life. It is a kind of life. Eternal, meaning not just wait until after you die to get it, and then you'll have it forevermore. It's eternal life, meaning it's the kind of life. It's the kind of life that God has. God has eternal life. It doesn't start. It doesn't end. It's a kind of life. And when you come to know Jesus, he shares that kind of life with you. It's not just a change of location that takes place when you are saved. It is a change of lifestyle because you don't just get, hey, I live over there forever in heaven. I live differently now here on earth. Both of those are included, I believe, in the phrase of, do you have eternal life? 
We too often are only concerned about God getting us into heaven. And you'll find in this passage, and in any passage you read in the Gospels, that Jesus doesn't sit around in towns and set up a booth and just hand out tickets to eternal life and ask people if they would like to have one. He's not offering a ticket. He's offering a lifestyle. He's offering a change. In the text, you'll notice that there are phrases that are practically parallel and interchangeable. He talks about entering the kingdom of God. He talks about having eternal life. The question is asked, who then can be saved? Because all of those phrases are talking about the same sort of thing. Entering the kingdom, you have to have a king. And if you're going to be saved, someone's going to have to save you from something to something, to someone. And so all of those things work together to complete the gospel. And that's why Jesus is giving it to this rich young ruler. He is not giving him the minimal heaven entrance requirements. He's not saying by offering eternal life that this is the least that you have to do in order to get into heaven because Jesus is concerned with far more than that. This past week on Thursday, I hope I had that right, um, we had, my wife and I had our anniversary. 32 years, I know, poor Chris. But I thought about, as I studied this passage, I wonder how well it went and went over if on our anniversary, which, by the way, was very romantic of me, we spent it at the township meeting together, which was fantastic. I did try to hold her hand, but she was on a different seat, so it didn't work out. But I wondered if I went up to her after the township meeting and said, you know, this is our anniversary, and I want to ask you a question. What is the minimal commitment level that I have to meet in order to remain married to you for the next 32 years? Now, that would have been worse than the township meeting, right? But I I don't go up and ask her those things, right? Why? Because that's what? That's because marriage is more than just a legal status, isn't it? It's a relationship. So I don't go and ask her those questions. No one does that, right? Not if you want to stay married for the next 32 years. And listen, our... Our salvation is more than just a legal status about how do I get into heaven. The question is, how does God get heaven into you? So there are two texts, and we developed the first one this morning, that have this question embedded in it. How do you have, how do you inherit eternal life? Now, for us to properly understand it, I think in the context, I want to point out a couple things before we get to the text. Going back to our text and building on it, can I show you chapter 10 and verse 29? We mentioned it this morning, but I'm going to read it to you again because it's mentioned two more times leading up to our passage. And Jesus is talked with the Torah expert, they call lawyer, in 10.29. The Bible says that he asks another question, and he does it. The motive behind it, verse 29, says, but he desiring to justify himself. And the root word is the word righteousness. And I said this morning, and I'm going to show you again tonight, that he wants to appear righteous. He wants to appear that he has a right relationship with God. And he's going to qualify that by asking the question, who is my neighbor? Who is the the minimum requirements that I have to do to love people in order to have this thing called eternal life? Right? So he's going to want to appear righteous. Chapter 16, closer to our text. Would you turn there? Jesus, again, talking about Pharisees. By the way, keep this in mind when we come to our text, because I believe the ruler in our text, the rich young ruler, is not a synagogue ruler, but a ruler of the Pharisees, kind of like a lead Pharisee like Nicodemus was. 16, 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. 
just like the one in our text in 18. He heard all these things that Jesus was talking about, that you can't serve God and mammon, previous verse. And because of that, they ridiculed him. They made fun, they mocked Jesus for that. And he said to them, listen, this is the Pharisees, you are those who, what? Same phrase, justify yourselves. You want everyone to think that you are righteous. But the truth is you are really not. But God knows your heart. See, that's the problem. They had never experienced gospel change. They had changed and they looked righteous. They appeared to be good, as the rich young ruler is going to say, on the outside. But they had never really been changed because although they looked pious and righteous and that they were right with God, their hearts were dark. In fact, Jesus would said they were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones on the inside because the reality was they didn't really love God. They loved money. And that's why the parable that follows about the rich men and Lazarus, it is not some sort of discourse on hell, although we learn a lot about it. It is an answer in parable form to what's wrong with people, especially religious people, Jewish people, who love God, but they don't love people, right? And the reason that keeps them from loving people is the loving of money. That's why the rich man is who he is in the parable. He is a lover of money, and therefore he has no time for Lazarus. And he ends up in hell, not because he's unorthodox, but because he's never really been changed, although he appeared to be such. So Jesus goes on to say, you appear righteous in the presence of men, but God knows your hearts. Watch this. But what is exalted among men, put at the highest level of esteem and honor, is an abomination in the sight of God. Notice the contrast. How men view it, and it's the same phrase in the original, in the sight of men, they say, this looks great. When you appear to be rich and you have have all this money and things and you look like you're really pious, And God says, I hate that. They think it's up here. I think it's down here. See, that's what you have to understand when it comes to salvation. See, how we think about it, how God thinks about it often are complete differences there. Chapter 18, really close to our text. The third time this phrase, justifying yourself, appearing righteous, is used, it introduces our text. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Here's what's going to happen in our chapter. He's going to tell a story about the difference between a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it's going to be a story. By the end of the chapter, into chapter 9, he's going to show us in a real living episode the same thing. So he's going to talk about a Pharisee who thinks he doesn't need to change and a tax collector who needs to change. That's what this paragraph is. But the real life story is, 1818, is this is the real life Pharisee who doesn't think he needs to change. And chapter 19 is the real life tax collector, Zacchaeus, who needs to change. What's the difference? Look what he says in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who, what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Oh, yeah. They believed and looked like to everyone else that they had it all together, that they really didn't need any change. They didn't need gospel intervention, so can I say. And what is the result? Please underline this. What is the result? And this is why I want to make this a point today. They trusted themselves. They appeared to be righteous. And what was the result? What well, was horizontal. And they treated others with contempt. They didn't care about people. 
They walk by people on the side of the road half dead. They walk by Lazarus at their gate every day and do nothing. And they look down their nose at everyone that doesn't meet up to their high moral standards. That's what self-righteous people who have never experienced gospel change do. You know the story. Two men go up to the temple. Same temple, same God. Two completely different people. One a Pharisee who gets as close to the altar as he possibly can and prays to God these words. Listen to this. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Here's the truth. They all need help. I don't. I thank you that i am already got it together. The other guy, it says, stands as far off. He is way out in the distance. And if this was a movie, you'd be watching it and they'd show one in the background. Here's the one guy up front in the front of the, the movie picture. And this other guy's way back here. And this guy's talking to God like he's all this with his hands in the air. And the other guy's in the background on his knees beating his chest. This is what happened at the cross where people left the cross and they beat their chest when Jesus died because they couldn't understand it. This is this guy doing the same thing over here. He's in the temple thinking, I probably shouldn't even be allowed in this far. And I'm on my knees praying. And here's what he says. Not that I'm better than everybody else. Here's what he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the difference? See, that's the difference about when you have gospel change. You don't appear to be righteous. You are righteous. And righteous doesn't mean you have it all together. It means you know God enough to know that you don't have it all together and that you need him in your life. And so in our text... When we come to chapter 18 and verse 18, we find the real-life Pharisee, and in chapter 19, the real-life tax collector, and this is how you live when you, when you do need change or when you don't need change. And I want to look at just at the one tonight, but keep in mind, the back of your mind, this is a comparison. Verse 18, the ruler, I believe to be a ruler of the Pharisees, asks him, Good teacher, here's our phrase, our our question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, a little puzzling at first on face value. He's asking a question about inheriting and doing. Jesus is going to give him an answer, but it wouldn't be the answer that you and I would probably give him. What are you going to do? We would say, believe on Jesus, his cross, death, and resurrection. Of course, Jesus hadn't died yet, right? So he can't say that. But why does Jesus frame it in doing so? Jesus' answer to this guy is about Torah, about keeping the commandments. And later on, when he tells him you lack something, he says, here's what you have to do. If you want eternal life, you need to do something. And the doing part is go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. So why does Jesus frame having eternal life with words that do something. And again, let's reiterate it just to be clear. We know the Bible teaches that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We don't do, it's done. We all know the verbs, the language. We know the truths that we don't earn our way to heaven. We don't merit it. We're not good enough. It's not our religiosity. It's not our works. It's not our merits. None of those things. So if we know that and Jesus knows that, then why does he frame it this way? Because what he wants us to know is that the gospel changes everything. That if you have eternal life, it will change you. It's absolutely required to change. And he says it from the very beginning. And that's how he presents the gospel to most people. And although it's not normative, Jesus didn't say to every person he witnessed to. He did not say, hey, sell all you have. He didn't say it to everyone, but he did to some. In fact, Peter chimes in and says, you said it to us. And what he wants us to know tonight is what's in our hearts. Does our life show? Is your eternal life 
showing. And the subjective belief in God is manifest in its reality by the objective relationship we have with people. Let me demonstrate that again tonight. The ruler says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus being the rabbi that he is, he answers a question with a question. That's what rabbis do. In fact, the old standing joke is, why do rabbis answer a question with a question? Of course, the answer is, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? Because that's the funny part of it, is that's what they do. And so Jesus says with a question, why do you call me good? Because the answer is good is not just an act. It's not just something I do occasionally. It's a quality. It's part of my essence. He says when it comes down to being good, you know, there's only one person who's good. So you better not toss it around so casually because God is good. And by the way, Jesus would say, insinuating, that isn't you. No one is good except God alone. Now here's what the guy, now he's going to say this, and he's going to prove to him that point. Because you have to get this to understand having eternal life. Jesus mentions the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And he mentions only, if you can pay attention, the second half of them. He doesn't talk about worshiping God only and taking God's name in vain. He doesn't say to you the first half of the Decalogue, only the second half of the Decalogue. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And if you looked at the passage, the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, chapter 19 and verse 19, and Jesus added at the end of that statement in that version of it, and love your neighbor as yourself. Light should go on. That's what we said this morning. See, loving God, connecting the vertical with the horizontal. So here's what Jesus says. See, if you really love God, first half of the Ten Commandments, it'll show up in the second half of the commandments with your relationship to people. It'll affect teenagers. If you have eternal life, you will effectively be manifest when you honor your parents. You don't honor your parents and you dishonor them. See, the Bible says your eternal life isn't showing. If you are unfaithful to your wife and sexually immoral, see, those are indications that you may not have eternal life. Why? Because when you love God, you honor your wife and you keep that commandment, he says. You don't murder, you don't treat people that way. And so the second half is the objective proof of the first half of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, listen, is that true for you? Let me connect it for you as a Pharisee. I know you know the commandments. Listen to this. I know you know them, and you don't do them externally. He goes, but I want to know, do you have a right relationship with people? I grew up in a church that was extremely fundamentalist. Extremely. And we were told growing up that the measure of our spirituality was what we don't do. And there was never a printed list that I'm aware of, although I wouldn't be surprised if there was one. But I knew it very well. I didn't need a printed list because I know I don't do certain things. And I could list them for you, but it's not worth it. But I came across with the understanding growing up that salvation was mainly about Bible information. And that information was mainly a list of things I don't do. And the, the Pharisee here, he's got that down. See, he would say... I kept all these from my youth. I'm good on that. All the I don'ts, I have them down. All the negative things I'm supposed to say no to and refrain from, I got that, Jesus. 
So if inheriting eternal life is keeping from all the bad stuff, I'm on track, right? And I've encountered that kind of quote-unquote Christianity, Bible information. But see, Jesus says it's not Bible information, although that's necessary. It's about Bible transformation. See, it's possible to be a Pharisee. It's possible that you know God or about God, but not really know God. And for this man, who has the same issue that the expert in the law had, is he thought he could have the first part of the Ten Commandments down, but not the second. And he thought keeping the second part of it was all about just not doing things externally. He didn't have to have a heart for anything. So he could pretend to really love people, but in his heart he could love money, and he thought God would be okay with that. And so he's able, with good conscience, to say, all these I have kept from my youth, because he says it's about I don't, but he really hadn't really done at all the I do parts of it, because there had never really been a change So we tell our kids today, and rightfully so, I don't do drugs, alcohol, immorality, rock music, certain types of clothes, tattoos, so forth and so on, and the list goes on. And those are good things to not do. But that isn't having eternal life. Eternal life is far deeper than that because Jesus tacks on this phrase, and I pray it will wreck you. He says, I know you don't do all the I don'ts, But in the text it says, you, one thing you still lack. You cannot do all the bad things and do them all well. Not do them all well, I should say. But Jesus says, you still lack one thing. In the three texts that are parallel to this, the word lack is the same word used in Romans 3.23 When Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, lacking in the text is a word that means deficient. It isn't enough. So Jesus would say, it's good that you're moral, but morality isn't salvation. Keeping the commandments is good, but it isn't eternal life. You can't inherit it by doing that. Because it's deficient. It comes short. The standard is here, and that only brings you to here. You're still not quite there, he says. If you want to look at eternal life in the framework of doing, that doesn't cut it, he says. He said, you need something more. And so what he does is draw his attention away from the externals of what he did and didn't do and the commandments he kept to the inside And this is the turning point in the story. He says, sell all you have. So why does he say that? If I told you tonight, go sell your car, your house, tell your kids that you no longer have any possessions. We don't even know where we're going to stay tonight. But it's a great trade-off because in doing so, we can be assured of eternal life. They might look at you strangely and, and rightly so. So this isn't normative, but what is Jesus doing? Well, he's telling them what eternal life is really about. It's about your heart. And so he says, sell all you have. Notice now, distribute it to the poor. We often run over that. What was wrong with Lazarus? What was wrong with the rich man when it came to Lazarus? Did Lazarus go to heaven because he was poor and the rich man because he was rich? No. The rich man went to hell because he demonstrated his lack of love for God that he didn't care about the poor. He didn't really care about people. 
He looked like he did. He looked like he probably would have, but he didn't. And here's what Jesus wants to know. Do you really care about others? I mean, really, do you? I know you said you honored your parents, but do you really care about people? Let me see if you really do. So give it to the poor, and what will be the result? And you will have thesaurus. That's the Greek word. You will have treasure. You will have a thesaurus. You will have a wide, variegated treasure that's so amazing that you can't even estimate it, he says. And notice, it's a treasure in heaven. So I wrote in my notes, the reason the treasure, to receive the treasure he wants, he has to let go of the treasure he has. In other words, you can't hold on to the real love of your heart and have the love of Jesus in your life and God at the same time. Thus, the words in Luke 16, 13, you can't serve God and mammon. In other words, you can't have two treasures. There can't be competing treasures. Eternal life is coming to the place in your life where Jesus becomes your treasure. He's the center of everything, and everything else is moved out from there. And that shows up in how you use your treasure. And so Jesus says, you'll have treasure in heaven, and I know you'll have eternal life. You know what? When your treasure isn't money anymore, but instead of using it for people, that's when you'll know you'll have eternal life, he says. See, he wasn't willing to change. He wanted to live in heaven, but he didn't want to live for heaven. See, his problem was, like the priest and the Levite, he is willing to walk past the poor, but not help the poor. And so I would almost rather say today in the 21st century, we should not just say eternal life, but we should say eternal life style, to be accurate. Because what Jesus is saying, here's what I want from you. I want you to get rid of your treasure here, put your treasure in heaven, and then watch. He's not done. And then come, follow me. I don't want you to do this just as an event. This is not just an event where you say, hey, look at me, I have eternal life. Bam, I gave all my stuff to the poor. Look at me, I'm there. Because that would be doing something. No, Jesus says, I want you to have a different kind of heart. And to get that, you've got to come and spend time with me to make this event a lifestyle. Come and follow me. Let me show you what it means to live your life and really love God and others. A kind of lifestyle where it says, I don't have a place to lay my head. And then I don't have, that's the lifestyle he's talking about. Jesus is inviting people to have eternal life, and he's inviting them to have eternal lifestyle with it. He wants a whole change to go with it. And when you offer that kind of eternal life to most people, the response is the same. He became very sad. And the word very sad. And the word very modifies it, and here's why. Because it's an intensive compound. It has a prefix in the front, which means very intensively sad. It's the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it says the disciples come and find him, and that he is sweating great drops of blood, and he is very sorrowful. Same word, very sorrowful, even to the point of death. I mean, this is intense sadness. I mean, this guy is broken, but he's not broken over his sin and that money is his God. He's broken up and sorrowful over this, that he would have to change like that to get it. That's the sad part. And Jesus says to his disciples, 
I have not forgotten that you have done that, that you've made the choice to give it all up for me and to follow me. And he says, you'll be rewarded. Watch, can I end with this? Truly I say to you, Jesus says in verse 29, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, see, for the sake of the kingdom, where Jesus rules your life as king. See, so salvation, entering the kingdom and having Jesus be your king, saving you from sin, all of those are parallel. Becoming Jesus' follower, disciple, that he, the rabbi, tells you how to live your life, all of those are the same, synonymous. Who will not receive, see what eternal life is? Many more in this time. See, eternal life starts now. That's why the guy was invited to follow Jesus now. And he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. There it is again. See, because eternal life is a life, a quality, a kind of life. It's God's life. And through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, he gives you the God life. And it changes you, not your location or the duration of your life, but it transformation. It transforms your life now and later. But can I tell you this? If it doesn't transform you now, there won't be a transformation later. That's what Jesus is pointing to. That, that's why you need to follow me. Because having life, my life in you, is what God wants for you now as a lifestyle. He had all the do's, do, do nots down, but nothing of the do's because he had outside or external conformity, but not internal conformity. He wanted God to get him into heaven, but he didn't want heaven to get into him. So can I start where, in where I started? Everyone has a gospel. What is yours? And the answer to that can be found in this, not just simply stating your beliefs, oh, as good as that is, but answering this question, where really really is your treasure. Do you love God and people? Every time we have a conflict with someone and we don't hurt them or gossip about them or avoid them, but instead we contact them and seek forgiveness with them and reconciliation, see the kingdom is breaking in. And every time we get a chunk of money that's extra, or above what we normally would have. And instead of buying something for ourselves, we give it sacrificially to others to meet their needs. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And every time you're busy with your own schedule and list of things to do on your agenda, but as you pass by someone, you stop and go out of your way to sacrifice them and, and love them even with costliness and danger. See, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And Jesus wants us to say, as we are asked that question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He wants us to connect the vertical and the horizontal. And he wants to be able to say, here's how you can inherit it. By loving God and others. So is your eternal life showing? Let's pray. Father, there can't be in Scripture perhaps a more important question than that. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I pray that we would have better grasped 
the content of that question as a result of today. And more than that, more than just storing up information, that we would seek transformation and that the eternal life that you have given us solely through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son would show up in our lives by the way that we treat and love our neighbors, others around us. The objective is certified, I say the subjective is certified by the objective, Lord, and may that be true in our lives. May we really, truly be your followers, your disciples, becoming more like you, Jesus, in all that we do, vertically and horizontally. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing, for it's through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.